0: Welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Yusun Park, who is an associate professor in the School of Social Policy and Practice at the University of Pennsylvania. We talk about her article, co-authored with Michael Reich, entitled, To Elevate, Humanize, Christianize, Americanize, Social Work, White Supremacy, and the Americanization Movement, 1880-1930, to in the October 2022 issue of Social Service Review. I cannot say enough about the level of research and analysis in this article. We are very fortunate because the article is going to become a book. Dr. Park explains the key points of the article, how social work was a major part of the Americanization movement, which was a national project rooted in whiteness, aimed at defining what it means to be an American and who gets to be an American, along with the full rights of American citizenship and the ability to enact those rights. Dr. Park breaks down how the Americanization movement which included many white social reformers and social work leaders, viewed European immigrants as Americanizable, or white, whereas indigenous peoples and Africans, along with Asian and Mexican immigrants, and even this wording is problematic because the U.S. took parts of Mexico, were seen as un-Americanizable, and the other. We discuss how many of these same white supremacist beliefs, policies, and practices show up in social work today. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode's sponsor, the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UH has a phenomenal social work program that offers face-to-face master's and doctorate degrees, as well as an online and hybrid MSW. They offer one of the country's only political social work programs and an abolitionist-focused learning opportunity. Located in the heart of Houston, the program is guided by their bold vision to achieve racial, social, economic, and political justice local to global. In the classroom and through research, they are committed to challenging systems and reimagining ways to achieve justice and liberation. Go to www.uh. Dot edu forward slash social work to learn more, and now the interview. Hi, Dr. Park. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on, doing the work. I'm really excited to have you here and talk about this incredible article that you and Michael Reich published in the December 2020 issue of the Social Service Review. To Elevate, Humanize, Christianize, Americanize, Social Work, White Supremacy, and the Americanization Movement, 1880 to 1930.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm super excited to talk about this book. Um, uh, Although, as I said to you before, I think um, that it's such a complicated topic that um, uh, it's difficult to
0: talk about. Absolutely. And I think one of the great things about podcasts is ideally they can make complicated topics initially more accessible, right? That people can kind of get into it and then ideally it encourages them to read the article and then to read the book that this will become, which is super exciting. Um, I also wanna, you know, acknowledge and congratulate you on the Frank R. Brule Memorial Prize, which is awarded to the best published in social service review for that preceding year. And that they acknowledged the groundbreaking nature of this topic and the breadth and depth of your research and analysis.
1: Thank you so much. Um, yeah, we were really happy to hear it and because hopefully it'll help um, people find their way to the article because I think it is an
0: important topic. Definitely. And you know, when I, for me reading it, you know, it, I just kept thinking, wow, like this was, this must've been an incredible, you might, I don't know how long you must've spent doing all of this research. I guess that would be, the first question before we really get into the content is like, how long did it take to even get this article out?
1: Um, you know, it's hard to talk about it in, in those ways because I first came across the, um, the idea. I conceived the idea when I was doing my dissertation. So a very long time ago, um, I came across a couple of articles that um, mentioned the term Americanization and um, you know, always had it in the back of my mind that I would come back to it and to really think about what, what does this word mean? Um, because it's it's kind of a disturbing word, right? Um, and as I have progressed in my career, I've really realized that it's not anywhere. That explanation of what this, um, means, um, isn't anywhere in our own disciplinary history and uncovering, um, things that we've sort of covered up in our history is something sort of what I do, Um, in my career so um, went back to it so how long has it taken me it's I mean a long time really to get to it and um, thankfully Michael um, agreed to do this actual project with me because it is a lot of work and and anyway I began it sort of thinking um, with the idea that that it was going to be this sort of time limited phenomenon because, um, what I understood was that this was a movement. So a movement that had a beginning and an end really, but then ended up really understanding that really was an endeavor that is ongoing because what Americanization, um, was trying to do was to really settle what it means to be American. And then what does it mean to be America? So it ended up being a much more vast project than I ever imagined, but that is, I think, the way any historical research goes. Um, there's so much you have to find out and know, um, and hardly any of that actually shows up on the page.
0: Yeah, it's it's really phenomenal, and you know, I knew nothing about the Americanization movement. I had never heard of it. I've now talked to colleagues, friends, you know, um, about it. They haven't heard of it. Either, and you know, these are all people who at least have graduate level, you know, degrees in social work or related disciplines. So this is this is really important. Um, which is, as soon as I saw it, I wanted to get you on here. So let's start with the quote that the title comes from: to elevate, humanize, Christianize, Americanize these elements of the population. What was the Americanization movement and what elements of the population was Reverend Frederick Howard wines talking about in this quote?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, you know, when you write anything you want to put a sexy title on and it. it was kind of a sexy quote. So, <laughs> um, this is a quote from the national conference, um, of charities and correction, which was the precursor of, um, what became the national conference of social works. So it was the main conference for, um, the profession of social work. And, you know, let me talk a little bit just about, uh, Frederick Wines, because he's such a good example of the kinds of people who were involved in social work at the time. Um, he was born into a prominent family of um, philanthropist family um, in Philadelphia. He became a Christian minister um, Went was studied at Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, His father was a philanthropist and a college professor, I think. Um, So he was a chaplain during Civil War and he became the administrator of the Illinois State Board of Public Charities in 1869 um, and was a uh, uh, statistician and had a really important or influential report on, um, this is a quote, defective, dependent, and delinquent classes of the population of the United States. Um, And the reason I say that he's sort of a good example. Um, he was also the secretary for the national prison association, um, for over a decade. Um, and he helped to establish that conference, the national conference of charities and correction. Um, and he did a lot of good work and was really a prominent member of, um, social work as it was developing. And I just want to pause and say, you know, we really need to note that the national conference of social work started as national conference of charities and correction. So carcerality, um, was there from the very beginning. Um, and I think is just a really good example because he was also a thorough racist, um, like so many others. And from the, for- the element that he's talking about here is, um, African-Americans, um, So this particular conference was in Nashville, Tennessee. And so he's talking about, there's a quote um, from him, if I can read. Um, He says, The great difficulty with which we have to contend in the North, where he's from, um, is the presence of the foreign element, meaning immigrants. The great difficulty in the South is the presence of the Negro element. We have to elevate, humanize, Christianize, Americanize these elements of the population, um, is, is the rest of the quote. So what does it mean to, what does it mean to Americanize? Um, I think the historian um, Maria Loret uh, describes it best in many ways, um, that it was a way of inculcating in everyone um, um Immigrants and um, people who were born here, um, the rights and privileges and duties of American citizenship. But it was also—I mean, that's one way to say it. But it was—it was a way to actually really define the other um, and define, in my read, who the we are um, in America, in American. So it was a—it was a nation-building project um, in the sense that. It was a project to really um, define what the nation is and where the nation was going and who the citizens of that nation um, should be, should act like, look like, um, and so on and so forth. So um, Loray describes Americanization as a um, deliberate and wide-ranging project in social engineering And the progressives were really famous for their love of social engineering. Um, So trying to fix society in particular ways. Um, And it's a project that actually, uh, as she says, um, Luray says, to develop the hegemonic discourse of American nationhood. So what does it mean to be American and how to inculcate absolutely everyone in the country in that notion? And as you can imagine, people disagreed. People who are very much involved in Americanization, including different uh, social workers, um, disagreed on what that meant, how you should get there. Um, and yeah, let me stop
0: there. I think what is really clear in the article and, you know, his quote and the other things you're saying about him are um, just come across very clearly is like the like you said the racism and also the classism that mm-hmm. is inherent from the beginning in terms of defining who is an american um and who who isn't right so like the, so one of the things that you write about is who gets to become american and who is excluded and deemed unamericanizable mm-hmm. i was hoping you could talk a little bit about that
1: sure um so in our analysis, I mean, Michael and I talked over this a lot, um, How we sort of categorize this idea of who is American and who is not American. Ultimately, um, as I say in the article, um, can be explained by um, Anglo-Saxonism and Nordicism. So it's about what white supremacy. So America as a nation um, that was begun um, by white people and should remain. So, um, and this notion of the Anglo-Saxon lineage, um, which then turns into this larger term called Nordic, um, uh, in the, around this time actually, because there's lots of immigrants that are coming in from, um, Eastern Europe. Um, so, and that Nordic term, incorporates um and enlarges the anglo-saxon term to include things like um people like the irish northern italians and the scandinavians who were in a previous era considered not anglo-saxon enough um and considered really problematic so um there's that and The the way I think it makes sense to really talk about this population, um, and of, um, who is Americanized and who is not Americanizable, um, is sort of broadly to think about, um, in most, uh, scholarship on Americanization, um, it's only immigrants, recent immigrants, the new immigrants that are talked about, but it's obviously bigger than that. The, um, the, the word Americanization was used to cover, um, and to really talk about civilizing, um, in quotes, um, both uh, indigenous Americans and, and uh, African Americans. Um, and the way that the literature reads to me uh, from the period is that here are these two people, two groups of people, indigenous and African Americans, who are here, we have to deal with them somehow. If we did it again, we probably wouldn't want them, and they obviously don't fit into this paradigm of the Anglo-Saxon or Nordic um, American who really is the true American. But they're here, and they're in large enough numbers that we have to deal with them. Um, the Mexican who um, so are coming in um, as as laborers a lot, and let's not forget the whole um, uh, war with Mexico and the fact that most of the Southwest um, we took um, as as war booty at the um, end of the war with Mexico um, with under the Treaty of. Um, Guadalupe Hidalgo. So to talk about Mexicans as immigrants is, is complicated, right? And, um, there's also Mexicans, um, the notion we have to deal with the, the Mexicans as indigenous populations of that, um, of those regions, but Mexicans insofar as immigration goes at this period, um, are considered really dispensable. So, you know, we can bring them in, we can use them and we can, um, throw them out if we want. And the Asians, um, Beginning with the, the 1882, uh, uh, Chinese, um, exclusion act are considered people that we could easily exclude, um, and should. And not to say that there weren't scattered Americanization efforts by organizations with either of these populations, but I think that's how it goes. White people are, um, are, Americans. And then there's these problem populations that are here. So we have to do something with. Um, And then there are these other two populations, Mexicans and and, um, Asians, mostly Chinese at this point, that we don't want and we can get rid of. So we don't really need to spend a whole lot of time either talking about them or um, trying to Americanize them.
0: It's just mind boggling. And this is where like rationality just has nothing to do with this stuff. Because like the um, Americans chose to be here. <laughs> like they came here, like, right. Like they weren't here originally. So to say, well, we've got this problem with these indigenous people. We've got these problems with African. It's like, but you all enslaved those Africans and you wouldn't even have an economy if it wasn't for that labor, that unpaid labor. So it's just right. There's like this total, maybe it so- seems like a disconnect, but really it's not. Cause it's still just all about control and white supremacy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's, um, yeah, I mean, to to get at this, to think about, you know, what kinds of sciences and what kinds of logics and what kinds of illogics were um, really deployed to make sense of all this is so complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can see this, how, how it plays out in the present too, right? Um, but, you know, wines um, and other people who are really prominent um, at the time, sincerely, Uh, believed. And, and um, they could be both. So Franklin Sanborn, for instance, he was um, one of the founders of NCCC, um, the National Conference of Charities and Correction. um, And really prominent person in the developing field of social work at this time. Um, You know, he was an abolitionist. He was one of the people who funded um, the raid on um, Harper's Ferry, right? John Brown. So he's one of the secret six. So, um, but at the same time, he was so profoundly racist, um, and had this really deeply held belief that he didn't have any trouble articulating that, you know, as as you know, bad as slavery might have been, um, it also had an effect of really elevating um, African Americans and um, allowing them to civilize at a speed that they would not have been able to do if they had been left. Um, in Africa, because of their um, forced proximity to um, white people. So, the the um, conference materials and, and other writings at a time um, by people who were involved in social work um, were just replete with this kind of contradiction. And I think it's really uh, something that we should think about now. Um, where are the contradictions? you know, that we're not really seeing. Um, and this idea that somehow um, somebody who does good work can't be racist um, or a racist can't be doing kind of the kinds of work that we would actually say, yeah, that's you know, we kind of like that kind of thing. So the complexity of um, political uh, affiliations, but also the really embedded, um, deeply, deeply sedimented fact of institutionalized racism. Um, and white supremacy that we don't see if we think about people and, and interventions and ideas in really these sort of dichotomous stark ways, I think.
0: Yeah. That section on Franklin Sanborn totally jumped out at me. It was like, wow, this guy helped fund John Brown and he's so racist. And Mm -hmm. the, one of the things that I think is so powerful about this article and, you know, I'm sure the book will have even more of it is that you went and you got the direct evidence. You got the direct quotes, right? It's there's this isn't a summary, this isn't like your own opinion of what happened. Um of course your analysis is there, but like these people said these things. These people did these things and to bring it up to the present day, you know some of this is still said, of course within social work. We see it. But a lot of it is a, is a lot more covert mm-hmm. now uh, in terms of just even the concept of cultural competence, right? And diversity and the othering that's involved and that's still centering whiteness and then everything else is other and there's something wrong with the other that we got to teach the white people how to, right? And th- so that thread, I, I just see it straight through as I'm reading this.
1: Yes. Um, yeah. Thank you for saying that, because that's exactly um, where the project began um, with this with the suspicion that, you know, we moved from Americanization and went to other language um, like assimilation, acculturation. And I think the language now is really integration. Um, but that to me um, and Michael would agree that that we haven't moved fundamentally because it's always unidirectional. Um, we're expecting um, the other and then there's to, to move into and become integrated into whatever America is, what, whatever our society is. And this notion of who is our, who is we um, always remains sort of unsaid um, and undefined. Um, but, you know, if you look, it doesn't take very long to figure out that 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 unsaid mainstream, that unsaid center is 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 whiteness. And, like you said earlier on, it's about middle class whiteness performing middle class whiteness um so one of the interesting things to think about, I think, is that is that a thing right? Does that actually exist, or is this sort of this imagined center um that we're we're constantly asking people to move towards um and it's not just immigrants, it's anybody um If you think about any intervention, um any kind of an idea in social work um yeah, how do you define the good, right? Um, and anytime you do any intervention, you, you're looking at anything, you're, you're trying to get people to, to be um, better, healthier, um, less risky, um, less whatever. And, and I th- really would argue that that thing that we're trying to move people into that we don't examine is whiteness. And that leaving that unexamined, um, means that we're complicit in the process, right? And we're complicit in that project of, of white supremacy.
0: Absolutely. So when you talked about social engineering, right, it's like that really, I think helps clarify a lot. And I don't, I don't, I haven't heard that a lot in my social work education and it needs to be, maybe others are using it a lot and it's just not, The education I got, or what I've been around, even as faculty for a number of years, but it is a social engineering of whiteness, Um, and it's like you said, and it makes me think of like these parenting classes. And I've done episodes on um, the family policing system, you know. And you made that connection to carcerality from the jump, right, from the very roots of social work, and and the idea that like, well, this person who's in poverty and that gets called neglect, right? And then now they have to go to these parenting classes and who who created those parenting classes and who sets the standard of what good parenting is? Just This is just one of many examples, of course.
1: No, that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. And if you think about um, some of the Americanization projects at the time, that's exactly what they're doing. Um, it, you know, the settlement houses have classes on parenting for women, right? Um, so uh, what does a, A healthy family look like what does a good family look like and and um it is our argument um in this article and in the book overall that that is predicated on middle-class whiteness um and that even people like jane adams and um the the more progressive i mean more liberal of the progressives um in settlement houses could not you know somehow remove themselves from their own um positions and their own training, their own socialization, thinking that this is better than this other thing. So, I mean, it, you know, some of it's funny, because you have um, white American social workers trying to teach new um, Southern Italian women how to cook. Um, because, you know, their food isn't healthy. Um but, you know, the family and women and, um, children become really central to this process, right? Because you got to get them early and to develop proper citizens, um, with healthy bodies and healthy minds, you have to start in the family. Um, and who's responsible for that? The women. So there's a lot of gendered ideas here. And, you know, it's also the same time. Um, this is the time when, um, uh, the kindergarten movement was happening, right? Um, so, and, and public education, uh, uh, compulsory public education is, is, um, happening. And so it's, there's a lot of different discourses, um, a lot of different forces, a lot of different sciences coming together to make all this work. But, um, but yeah, it's, um, and you know, whether it's immigrants or whether it's, it's children, um, thinking about, yeah, how do you define what that ideal is, um, and and to repeat myself, I mean to not examine what that ideal. Where are we going? Where is it that it's going? Um, means that we're really not examining the um, the political ramifications, the the structural um, structural deeply embedded structures that force us to really operate in these ways.
0: Absolutely. So let's you started to get into it a little bit, and I want to go more into how some of these Americanization programs actually operated. And I know they were different, right, for different groups of people, as they as uh, Wine said, elements, the different elements, as he said, of the population.
1: Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, one thing to, um, I guess, to say is that it was a movement and it was a movement that went on for um, a few decades, but it was a massive movement. Um, there were Americanization programs started by and, and run by states, municipalities, um cities, um it involved um public uh voluntary private sectors, um the industry um you know as well as um religious organizations. I mean everyone was involved in this thing. Um something like 30 plus states um enacted legislation to promote uh, Americanization um uh, cities created and funded bureaus to study methods of Americanization and how to best deliver it. Um, American um, industrial um, bodies got super involved. Um, the Ford Motor Company was huge in it, uh, American Steel and other industries. Um, and, you know, the, the compulsory English classes was one big thing. Um, so there was a lot of education involved. So whether it was at, um, uh, nighttime or during the school, um, day, uh, English language classes and civics classes and how to be, um, a citizen and how to, how to practice democracy, what that means. Um, uh, I think something like three or more than 3000 school boards are involved in this. Um, and of course settlement houses, um, and charity organizations, societies and every aspect of social work was uh, doing this. And I've argued before um, uh, and continue to do so in this paper, and we will, Michael and I will in the book, um, that, you know, in some ways, um, in every way, I think, um, every piece of work that we did as social workers was Americanization work, whether you call that or not, because um, every piece of work is is geared towards developing um, a particular type of human being to function in a particular type of society. And that, that has um, uh, theoretical um, drivers, right? So this is what that person should look like. This is what an ideal child should look like, because then if you provide that ideal childhood, then you can have that kind of a citizen. But in order to have that idea, then you have to know what, what, what kind of a citizenry are we looking for? So um, I hope that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, mandatory schooling, all kinds of things. I mean, in some ways, maybe the um, the Ford Motor Company's project was uh, a really good example because um, what they did was they held um, compulsory English classes on the factory floor um, because they had people from all over the world um, working. And, and, you know, one argument was that this was going to make things more efficient every, if everyone spoke English. Although I think there was really seriously a um, – Uh, patriotic assimilative um, and moral component to the fact that people should speak English. Um, And that um, then there was a whole uh, division that Ford developed called the Sociological Division um, where people were sent out to homes to surveil. Um, So somebody might show up at your house all of a sudden unannounced and ask you I mean, to see, do you have a savings account? Are your kids in school? What kind of furniture do you have? Is there alcohol laying around? Um, sobriety, morality. Um, do you have lodgers? Because you don't want to have lodgers that are unrelated to you living there if you have a daughter living there. Been this kind of idea. So there's a whole lot of surveillance. And it got tied to how much money they got paid as salary. So if you could pass all these things, you, you earned a higher salary than if you couldn't pass these things. Wow. And yeah, so this is so that this sort of compulsory Americanization, um, is called, um, it sort of usually talked about as 100% Americanism, um, on one end. And then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum are people who, um, really thought, no, we, you know, we need to have a, um, a kinder, gentler Americanization program. This is not how you get people to love America and become American. Um, we should let them, you know, more of the kind of all um, angle of, um, pluralistic ideas that, you know, they get to have, you get to have your food and, and particular types of cultural habits and practices. Um, and that, you know, we need to invite you in, um, rather than, and then force this upon you. So there's a large spectrum of people, um, and large, different, large spectrum of types of activities.
0: And these are more for the immigrant groups that were deemed able to Become white, more so. Correct.
1: Yeah, that's a um, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so, I'm going to bring us back to um, the 1790 Naturalization Act. Um, so, 1790 Naturalization Act, and you know there were m- multiple amendments after that, but um, the one of the main components of that, which said only free whites could become naturalized citizens of the U.S., held until 1952 in many ways. Um, so. So could they, um, the European, the Southern and Eastern European um, immigrants who were coming in large numbers at this time um, compared to the the Northern and Western Europeans um, from England and, and other places um, were talked about as the new immigrants and the inferior immigrants. Um, but they were always white because they were not, their naturalization was never held up by this, um, 1790 naturalization act, which said only free whites could become U S citizens. And this component, um, this notion of what whiteness was, was, um, really contested in the courts, um, in the Supreme court, um, multiple times around this time. Um, and where it really came down was that, um, Asians were not, uh, were not white. Um, Post Civil War Naturalization Act um, for um, uh, 1860 Naturalization Act um, that was post Civil War um, brought in, um, stated that people of African and African descent could become naturalized. Um, So that was not an issue. Um, Not that you had very many African immigrants coming in at the time, but um, yeah, so even you know the the russian jewry um uh, fleeing pogroms um the the sicilians um, who were really hated as you know oversexed and really problematic um populations um people from dalmatia people from um you know the carpathian mount i mean every, all these europeans that you think of um from eastern europeans um who were really um, vilified in many ways were still white
0: mm mm-hmm.
1: um did I go off on a tangent there?
0: No, no, that was really good. And so, so, so based on my understanding from the article, right, is that these groups could receive these, and well, not could, did receive mm-hmm. these Americanization programs, right? Because it was like, we're going to do this to you and it will help you, right? That was always the, but then, but then like Mexicans, Asians, indigenous people, black people, what happened with them was different. I see what you mean um yes
1: i yeah, I think you know how we conceived them conceived um americanization um was very different yeah and and I mean we don't have enough really time to go over the um the indigenous American um population and because that was a series of um genocide um genocidal laws that um took um not only the land away but the it was systematically trying to undo the particular um, ways of life um, because that was one of the ways in which Americanization um, was thought about for that particular population that we have to get them out of this notion of um, communal property let's say or or you know we need to actually inculcate this notion of individual ownership and um, and so that looked very different than, than how it functioned for um, European um, white European immigrants. Um, yeah. And, and for the most part, Asians were simply blocked 1882 to 1824. There was a series of um, sorry, 1882 to 1924. There was a series of laws that are passed to really block them from coming in entirely. Um, so yeah you didn't really have to do a whole lot of Americanization because they were considered um, really un-Americanizable. The term race suicide was developed by, um, it was coined by Edward Ross, who's a sociologist, a really prominent sociologist who's considered the the, the father of American sociology. Um, He talked about a lot about how the Oriental um, was going to, the, the Oriental workman was going to, um, be the cause of race suicide because the white man could not compete. Um, because the, the, the Oriental workers were um, able to, and willing to live on so little because their lack of standards. Um, so this was actually heading towards, um, so allowing them to come into the country was heading towards race suicide. Um, African Americans, I mean, Americanization was talked about because, um, you know, really, uh, One of the big need for this, um, people like Sanborn talked about, um, a lot was that, wait, all of a sudden, you know, the civil war happens and, and these people who are enslaved, um, now I have the franchise, they can vote. This is a big deal. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is that, um huge numbers are moving up North, right? In the great Northern migration. So then there's a lot of writing about, okay, so they're coming from the South and they don't know how to do anything. How do we Americanize them into um, society? The, for the white Europeans, um, one of the things I think that was really important to inculcate was their recognition and buy-in into this racial cultural hierarchy um, to learn that they were white and what that whiteness looked like and how they had to perform it in this country um and to be then slot themselves into a hierarchy does that make sense um because yeah. that wasn't really obvious in many ways right so part of that was to i mean really accept and then participate into the differential wage system um the the segregation um and and learning really to know that you know i i'm um, i'm better than those other populations. And thus I deserve more. And so how to quickly um, inculcate them into this uh, white supremacist um, ideology, I think, is was part of their training in Americanization.
0: Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. I mean, there's a reason like in my own family that, you know, we don't speak Yiddish anymore. And I see it as directly connected to assimilation. And being able to, right? So someone has to be able to assimilate, which is the whiteness part of it, and then what is given up culturally, ethnically, right? To do so, and what it what it then means, um, you know, is something I think about often.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I think one way to think about culture as a necessity, um, because if you could, you know. If you could become part of American, then that sort of hyphenated Americanness didn 't need to exist. I mean people like um uh, roosevelt and 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 the one hundred percent american um, Americanism people really railed against this idea that they would be hyphenated Americans um You had to give all that up in order to be considered American, so that was something that was. Argued publicly and, and taught publicly, so yeah, to give up this notion of language, um, you know, whatever language you came from, and and notions of how to dress, how to how to talk, um, where to live, what kind of furniture to buy. Like I was saying, um, were things that you know social workers were actually teaching. Um, you know, there's there's a poster that I found um, in doing this research, and it's a Ku Klux Klan um, recruitment poster. Um, from the 1920s and it was from, um, Baltimore and I, you, obviously this is a podcast and you can't see it, but, um, let me just read you, um, membership in the Ku Klux Klan is systematically against and regularly opposed to any and everything contrary to pure Americanism. It works within the law legally and morally and welcomes honest criticism. It is an active Protestant organization with strong backing, insisting upon the unhampered maintenance of all American institutions and continues to advance and will go ahead and go ahead, notwithstanding all opposition from any quarters whatsoever because of its determination for right and its belief in pure Americanism. So, so I think, you know, it's, we sort of think about Ameri- uh, Ku Klux Klan as having a very sort of, um, limited presence in the South or something like this, but, um, that isn't the case. And they were very much involved in this notion of what is an American. And if you look at the so-called culture wars today, um, you can see the connection, right? Immediately. What is it, to, what does it mean to be American? Who is American? How do you have to behave? Um, you know, what is it? So, yeah, I mean, that, that thread, um, which, uh, um, some historians argue it was developed then and we continue today. So it, it, even though it was like a limited time frame of, as far as a national movement um, and, you know, those bureaus of Americanization does not exi- uh, do not exist anymore. Um, that these ideas are still settled and, and operating within our systems. And um, uh, George W. Bush um, created um, through an executive order. Um, uh, I think, a, what is it called? It was, um, Bureau of Americanization, um, or, uh, new Americans. Um, and they put out, um, they put out a, 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 document. Um, and part of it is, um, how do you create uh, Americanization for the 21st century? Wow! Um, so this is not a thing that went away. Um, we just don't talk about it in, in the particular ways that, um, they did. Which you said, you know, now it's far more subtle um, and it's sort of sub-rosa, but um, the ideas are, I think, still very much present.
0: Yeah, subtle in some aspects of social work. But like, for example, when you were making the connection to the culture wars today and as you were talking earlier, I was writing some notes down. I wrote down anti-CRT, anti-DEI, anti-diversity, because like I'm in Florida (laughs) and Hmm. But like people can look in Florida and be like wow it's so extreme and like it is and it's getting worse but like this is happening everywhere and this is the test case like right this is like um you know all the anti Disney like Disney being woke like i like these targeted campaigns like they started there was a campaign that started clearly like last night where all mm. these um right like people who are been a part of the anti CRT movement, the anti-trans, like using certain terms and and issues to build this, you know, generate more political power and get, but then get these things passed. All these posts started going up on social media about this clip from a Disney series um, where they're talking about the history that this country was built on slavery. And it's a cartoon and they're talking about it and, you know, they're all posting like, this is the woke... You know this we need to get rid of this, and it's the same type of thing because this his, this is the history that isn't taught like everything in your article you know when I read it I'm like in and, and I'm talking about social work, but then the broader social works only a smaller example of the broader society, and yes. you know um and by not teaching this history, like you said, we're continuing to avoid the conversation and I think you know I'm just gonna say it because this is what I think and I'm gonna say it it's my podcast and let me know what you think and um, but I think you know Franklin Sanborn you know um, Frederick Howard Wines maybe they sound extreme like people listening could be like that's extreme but like if you really go deep into some of the so- some of the people who are teaching social work administrators running social work, the belief in the superiority of Americanism and white people is still there. They will never come out and say it, but it is there through the programs they do through their actions.
1: Yeah, and and you know, I guess what I would say to that is um, that beyond the beliefs and and behaviors of individuals. Um, you know, really, uh, encourage us as social workers to look at the structures. Mm-hmm. What does education look like? What are we studying? What's considered a good, right? So, um, w- what are we teaching people? How do we, un- like you had brought up earlier, um, what do we imagine as the, um, the family? What, what kind of behaviors? Um, and without looking at those fundamental structures, um, I think we miss a big deal. Um here, and you know, just to say, I mean, if you act, I mean, I actually started looking into because of this project, um, the eugenics ties um to social work are really just unbelievable. um and so in this project, I keep unearthing um, unearthing all these individuals who are um, you know some of the founders of social work in many ways who were. Um, part of the eugenics movement um, that I've never seen anywhere, right? And so, you know, a couple of things come up for me, which is how do we not know this? Um, and it's because we don't study any of this. But, you know, I brought up the 1790 Naturalization Act before. How many American students actually learn about that? Mm-hmm. That we actually had a legislation that said only, um, you know, our nation, um, the citizenry of our nation only could could only be um, white, right? Right. Um, that's not white privilege in like a a amorphous way that you have some psychological privilege. No, that means you cannot come into the country. Um, And there are all kinds of attendant laws that you couldn't own land. Um, You couldn't even rent land for more than a period of time, let's say. Um, So these are concrete, um, concrete structures that got in the way of people being able to uh, live and participate fully in our society or even, you know, really uh, step foot. Um, here, for one thing, um, uh, by the way, that um, it was called a Task Force on New Americans that George W. Bush um, put together. And I just saw um, mention on the internet that um, Biden has just reauthorized this um, task force on New Americanization. Um, new Americans. <laughs> Um, so I'm not sure what, what the content of that will be. Um, but you can imagine that, um, it has a lot to do with, um, unity and what, you know, um, what civic duty and, and, um, how you perform democracy. And so these are politicized terms. And, um, back to you talking about Florida, one of the, the example that I give, um, which really spoke to me, um in the, in this article, um, was the story of Enid, Oklahoma. Um, it was a New York times article, which was talking about, um, the small town, um, small, you know, uh, place in, uh, at the edge of the, um, um, the prairie lands, um, and in Oklahoma. And it spoke to me especially because Oklahoma was the last of the, um, it was called Indian territory. Um, the very last, um, part of, um, that, um, which was then of course taken away in order to make this, uh, the state of Oklahoma. So, but this article was about New York times article was about, uh, the pandemic and, and mask wearing and how, um, the, the, that, uh, city's, um, uh, efforts to make people wear masks and, um, turned into this huge thing, um, became a culture war where, um, you know, uh, a, different organizations were started and people really felt like this was, you know, the, we were fighting about, um, the article says that we're, they were fighting about masks, but you know, really what they're fighting about was who's American and what does it mean to be American? And in it are expressed these ideas that, um, there's a great demographic shift had happened in Enid, um, meaning the influx of, um, Asians and, um, Hispanics is what it says. Um, um, changing the, the, um, the, the nature, um, and the character of the place, right? And the article, you know, of course fails to point out that this used to be Indian territory. And before Indian territory, it was, it was, you know, unincorporated territory of any kind. Um, so that this was not the first time a great demographic shift had happened. But what that article really does is to talk about people feeling, um, all the white people in, in that area, um, town or city, um, feeling um, discomfort that their idea of what America was was being challenged by this influx of new people. And, you know, I read the article several times and, and ultimately came away with this um, realization that there is this really common sense belief that, yeah, if you anywhere, you know, in the US, if you have all these immigrants coming in, um, non white people come in, then it's of course people are going to feel like their way of life is being changed. Um, right, and then I think, but well, why? <laughs> it's not an obvious thing. Um, it it only is obvious that that what Americanness um, is being threatened only becomes obvious if you actually really hold on to this notion that, without stating it, that American means white
0: mm-hmm.
1: and particular thing, right? So, I think it's a topic that is uh, really, really, really live and well right now. Um, and, you know, Florida, um, CRT, all those things are, um, the current aspects of it, but, you know, during, during the Trump era, all the immigration laws and all kinds of laws that he, um, threw up were straight out of the playbook of the 1920s. Um, uh, you know, um, do you remember him saying something about, um, Um, We don't want uh, any more uh, immigrants coming home, coming from this um, this shithole countries. And what we want are more Norwegians. That is Nordicism Mm -hmm. Um, right there. So these ideas have not gone away, nor have they gone dormant. I think that there's a renewed permission to say it out loud in a sense, since, since um, the, the Trump administration, I think. Um, But, um, yeah, not, not ever um, gone away.
0: You know, something that I th- I think about in terms of social work practice or like clinical practice, right? And just how we go about a lot of things and critical race theories really helped me, especially this article um, by Dr. Tara Yoso on whose culture has capital, um, just around this concept of like deficit thinking, right? And that there's like a problem, like there's something wrong with someone. And then, you know, talking to you and reading this, it's like, yes, this is what goes all the way back to the beginning. Because the problem is you're not white enough or you're not white, right? Like that was the standard. And then all these other things become the problem. And that's still, we don't, like you're saying, like we don't say it necessarily now, but we still look for the problem and then like some deficit within a person rather than what are these social conditions, you know, and how they're affecting people's lives. But I I don't know, at least for me, I draw the line from present day deficit thinking back to how these other groups were considered problems.
1: Yeah, I mean, no, absolutely. Um, I actually have an article. Um, it was one of the first articles I ever wrote when I was in the doctor program called "Culture as Deficit." Oh wow! Um, uh, I'll send it to you. It's discourse analysis of um, the concept of culture and social work, and in it, why what I um, say um, as an analysis is that you know the word culture doesn't get applied to people um, unless you're um, some minoritized um, uh, position, and that um, it usually. It's, it's a proxy for race and culture. I mean, race and ethnicity and other things and, and, and definitely, um, class. Um, but that, you know, what it measures really, um, is the distance from the, um, the, the unarticulated center, which is, which is whiteness. Um, you know, cause I mean, how many trainings have I been in where some, um, white person from the mid, uh, Midwest says, well, I don't really have culture, right? Right. Because I'm not an ethnic, I'm not a hyphenated person. Um, I mean, really think about that. And the way I explain it to my students in class is that if you've ever gone down a, um, the aisles of a grocery store, right? And you have that section and they don't, usually now it's international, but it, there used to be sections that said Mexican or they used to be the oriental section. Um, you have to think about what the rest of the grocery store is. The rest of the grocery store is just food. Right, right. So, what gets to be food and what needs to be hyphenated as this weird food, right? So, I mean, that is really—it's uh, it, really a simple explanation of how we understand that otherness in this society um, and around culture. But culture, I think, as I say, is really often a proxy um, for those raced and um, classed positions. Um, so, yeah, I'll stop there. But um, what else? What have we not talked about now?
0: We've covered a lot and. But one, one thing I just want us to be really explicit about, too, is like just the anti-blackness in all of this, you know, because obviously if white ends up being the standard, then white can only exist as the anti-black. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Um, anti-blackness is something um, that is present in, in all of this. Um, uh, African-Americans, um, uh, as sort of the the, the conceptual nadir of, of um race thinking. Um, and, and one good example, I think, that all other groups really um, bought into in many ways, all of us, right? Um, because, and a good example of this to me is that um, the Supreme Court cases and, and court cases that were happening um, around the turn of the century into the 20s around, um, especially Asians, um, trying to become but it wasn't just Asians, actually. It was, you know, the Syrians and, and um, uh, Armenians and, and other populations arguing that they should be part of this whiteness um, to be able to be naturalized. Um, I've looked and I've there's two ways to to actually gain um, the right to naturalization. One was to claim whiteness. So there were um, all these cases where people said, well, no, I should be um, part of that whiteness because whiteness can be interpreted in this way. So, you know, it means that I'm I'm assimilated or it means um that I'm from a region originally. Um there's a there's a um Bagat Singh Tind case where um Mr. Tind's uh argument was that uh he was an Indo-Aryan. He spoke an Indo-Aryan language and um the high caste um people from India originally came from the region of Mount Caucasus. So they're um original Aryan. So, but put me into this whiteness. Um the Jap- famous um, Japanese American case um, was um, uh, Mr. Ozawa said that he didn't speak Japanese, I didn't eat Japanese food, so I, I were really white because what white means is assimilatable. Um, both were denied, um, but the really interesting thing to me is that they didn't argue for the absolute ludicrousness of. The, um, the set of policies that said whiteness was a, um, a reasonable measure. Right. Right. So, and then, you know, but that's understandable. They needed citizenship was in a matter of, of, of life and death for many people. Um, so it was an exigency. So you argue for it however you can. But the interesting thing is that there was another way to become naturalized, which was to argue for blackness. Because remember the 1860 um, law that said Africans and African um, people of African descent could become naturalized as well. Nobody went there Hmm. Um, because that didn't actually bring you to um, a citizenship that was um, either desirable or worth anything. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, So anti-blackness is at the heart of so much of this um, and also, you know the, the the um the i think the efforts to completely um destroy the um the ontological the epistemological um uh, framework of um indigenous american life um was something that we don't really talk about much in 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 social work um I think it, both are very important, but you know, just to not only because I'm Asian, but also, um, because I think it is important. I think we also forget that, um, so many laws about, um, that are currently existing around immigrant surveillance, um, were created to block, um, Asian bodies from coming into this country. Um, so to m- miss that history also is to really uh, have an incomplete understanding of the history of racism in this country. Um, because to not get the nuanced histories of, of different populations it, it is to constantly only see this as a dichotomy, right? There's white people and there's non-white people, which then de- once again centers whiteness, I think. Um, I hope that makes sense to me.
0: Yeah, and I know you know you have prior work on this um, around the internment, Of Japanese Americans, but you know that's another piece of history of U.S. history that often isn't taught. I mean, I never learned about it. I learned about it through personal relationships with people who had family members who were who lost everything and were forced, you know, into internment camps.
1: So that history also was something I discovered when I was doing my dissertation, and I couldn't believe it. Um, I because it was in no history book. Um, it's beginning to appear in his social work histories now, um, since I wrote about it, but it wasn't anywhere. And I remember going to my professors and asking, do you know about this? You know, how, how come we don't know about this? And it's not in any book that I'm looking up, um, because nobody had written about it post 1946 in, in social work. Um, and the only person who knew about it was, um, uh, my, uh, my mentor, um, uh, Tony Ishisaka, who had been born in a camp. Mm. Um, Nobody else on my faculty had actually ever heard that this had existed. So it's interesting to think about what kinds of histories get erased.
0: Absolutely. And, and, you know, and as you've shown in your prior work and in this work, social work's been a part of all of this, like not just not telling the history, but being involved in this, this oppression that's been done and is continuing to be done.
1: Yeah. We need to take a lot more responsibility. I think, um, I think we tend to hide behind this. Oh, we don't have any power. Um, which is, which is, I think, um, kind of a disingenuous, um, argument, but also I think our own, the history of social work, um, is understudied. I have to say, um, in that I think we don't realize how central, um, the development of social work was to not just social work, but for any um, social sciences um, and any of the different movements and different um, endeavors that happened in the progressive era. I mean, I was joking about it to somebody the other day, but, you know, there's hardly anybody who had any liberal cred um, in the progressive era who didn't at some point live in a settlement house. um I think we've undercut that history, um, in, in multiple ways, um, by, by a, by insisting that we were somehow kinder and gentler and purer than other, um, people and nicer, um, and by not understanding our own, um, influence in the, in the history of, of this country, um, especially in the, um, social sciences. So I think, there's so much to be studied in this.
0: Yeah, I've done some episodes on like um the history of the National Association of Black Social Workers with one of, I was able to I was honored to interview one of the founders. That was just phenomenal in our in the National Archivist as well and that was a, just so educational and also um an episode about like the whitewashing of social work history and it was very much focused on like black social workers, you know, and for for me, and I'm still kind of trying to work through this in my own mind, and especially now reading your piece, is, you know, is there one social work or are there, like, many different kinds of social work um, that are all happening, you know, simultaneously and kind of in tension with each other or something gets has become called social work or in the past? For example, like, the Black Panther Party, the Young Lords, right? these groups that mm-hmm. believed in community self-determination and had all these like social programs, people don't talk about them as social workers, and I don't know if they would call themselves that way either. Um, but there is a historical tradition in that that then led into present-day um, social work and also like for the NABSW and that tradition as well. So I'm still trying to kind of figure that out, I guess, for myself um what it means because people will say social work but what they're talking about often is like white social work
1: yeah i think so um i mean i'm right with you in in trying to figure all this out um i think i started this whole conversation by saying how complicated it is and what i find is that the more i study it and more i'm researching something the more i realize that i don't know Mm -hmm. um so you know i have to go and study a whole nother pile of things um but I think there's some hopefully some new scholars coming along um, with different um I mean, like that uh that article on um the whitewashing, right? They're young scholars who are coming up um with different takes on things. I have a, a, a student, um, a doctoral student who's working on challenging this notion that um social work excluded uh minority populations because um enacting racist policies and, and interventions, um, was actually, I'm going to explain it badly, but, um, was creating, um, was determining the lives, right. And structures of, um,
0: people of color,
1: especially, um, does that make sense as a,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, slightly different angle, right. Um, to look at um, the presence of racism and white supremacy in social work, rather than saying, looking at absences, but how uh, the presences that we don't acknowledge.
0: 100%. I just want to say that, so the two authors, the two scholars of that article on Stop Whitewashing Social Work History Tell mm-hmm. the Truth, Kalichi Wright and Courtney Carr. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I did an interview with them and that article was in advances. And that, that's just a phenomenal that was like an incredible double issue that there's just so many great articles that are talking about a lot of this. Um, But I've never seen anything about the American Americanization movement period. And then with social work. And I just think this groundbreaking work that you've done is phenomenal. Um, When is the book, is there a (laughs) timeline? (laughs)
1: you know that is a question that authors hate um Sorry. yeah it's actually it's actually supposed to be due um sometime this summer um so hopefully that'll get done um i think michael um uh-huh. is going to pull his hair out when i say that i keep finding new materials um so uh you know i keep going down these um different paths so yeah it's interesting to see um all these things that I don't know about that. I um, So writing history is kind of like, you know, you see the tip of the iceberg, but you have to know what's underneath it in order to actually make sense of anything. So if you see this happened, right, how do you interpret that event? Um, you have to know what else was going on during that time. So it ends up becoming this massive task um, of searching, searching, searching and doing, doing um, more research to see um, what happened. And then, you know, that may or may not end up on the page. Um, so yeah, so all that to say, um, hopefully this year.
0: So in the show notes and the podcast website, I'm going to link to this article so people can access it. And then when the book comes out, I'll go back and update and put the link to that so people can find it. So, um, you know, save the episode, people checking this out, listening, reading the transcript so you can come back to this or stay informed. with Dr. Park so you can see when the book comes out. Because you are on social media that people can follow you and stay up to date on your stuff.
1: Barely, but yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully when the book comes out, you'll at least post about that. I know you keep a low profile. Um, is there anything you feel like we missed? I mean, I know there's always more we could get into with this.
1: Um, No, I mean... You know, only to say that um, I think everything I've talked about um, really is the knowledge I have up to the present, and that I'm always um, I'm always studying and learning a new thing. so um, yeah, that's all.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing your knowledge, your expertise, and having this conversation. and thank you for doing the work.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciated um, the ability to just have this in-depth conversation with you. It was fun.
0: Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.